Quit drinking, your problem's over. It's written for the chronic alcoholics. Alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. Any considerable period, drunk or sober. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. Boy, we have too. I mean, we have tried some stuff. I, I, it's just bizarre stuff. I was at a, I was at a couple of years ago. This guy was in a meeting. Shared, he, he was, people were talking about different ways to get over hangovers and not to straighten their life out. This guy was talking about coffee enemas. I thought, jeez. I mean, who thinks this stuff up? I mean, it's, didn't work. He's a newcomer. I mean, you know. It's, it's, And then it says, the last sentence in this paragraph says something. It says, science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. And you know something? I wish they would stop trying. I've been, I've been around. I remember the Rand report. I remember, I've, I've been through probably 50 things over the years that have come out that were going to fix us, that didn't fix us. The Rand report, the Rand Corporation spent millions of dollars on this project to prove they could... Tr- turn alcoholics into social drinkers. And it, it worked while they were in a controlled situation. A couple of years later, they had to go back and, and publish this thing that, that really didn't work. Those guys, a lot of those guys were dead or in institutions, or a couple of them were in AA. Then there's the, you know, the Raleigh Hills and the Keeley Cure. You know, we had went through that. We're, we're, like, it's, as if throwing up's going to make me quit drinking. I mean, <laughs> I can, I can walk down the street, throw up, and never hit my shoes. and just <laughs> That's just something you adjust to. Uh, I, remember, I, I remember the 70s when, when this, is, this will sound bizarre in today's light, but I tell you, it wasn't so bizarre. When if you took a, a physician's desk reference from the early 70s and you looked up Valium, or Librium, it would say things like they're non-addictive. It, the doctors recommended them uniformly across the country for people who had alcoholism that were trying to quit drinking, as if alcoholism is a Valium deficiency or something. Right? <laughs> We've tried everything. And they're never going to come out with a pill. Let's, let's indulge them. Let's have a little fantasy. Okay, let's say science comes out with a pill that's going to take a guy like me and make me into a social drinker. The first thing I'm going to think about was, well, how social could I get? I mean, you know, if one pill would do that, how, you know, God, what would happen if I took three or four? I, I mean, there'd be guys, there'd be guys in this room that'd be snorting them and smoking them and shooting them, and just, you know, I mean, because the people who think that don't get it. We don't, we don't want to be like social drinkers. We would like to have the consequences of social drinkers. But I don't really and never would want to be the guy who get, works hard all day, goes to a bar, has just two beers, and goes home and cuts the grass. I don't want to be that guy. I'm the guy who has two beers, gets a gallon of tequila, and heads for Tijuana. I mean, that's my nature. Uh, Scott? Oh, yeah, isn't that great? I am so glad this isn't a contest. I'll tell you right now. 
I, he reminded me, a lady friend in my home group says, one of these days some idiot's going to invent a pill that'll make you normal. And I'm going to take a whole bottle of them. I'm going to be extremely normal. <laughs> he also reminded me of a couple other cute things I've heard here and there. The first rule of holes, when you're in one, stop digging. And the first rule of cavalry, when the horse is dead, dismount. <laughs> These are hard concepts for us. I try to give it, you know, take, take them in small bites. I was, I was talking about the things that I got here knowing for sure that turned out to be incorrect. And I was suffering from what I like to call the John Wayne syndrome. And it was uh, at about age 11, I got this mental image of what a man was. And it pretended to be that for the next 30 years. And I'll, I'll encapsulate it for you. It was uh, big boys don't cry, never apologize. It's a sign of weakness. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Never let them see your weaknesses. Never ask a stupid question. Get what you want. It'll make you happy. Uh, never give up. Never surrender no matter what. Sound familiar? That's the act I was doing when I got here. Thinking that's what a man was. And knowing that I was insufficient. So I was pretending to be that. And it has been my experience that that stuff was the exact opposite of what real men are. Real men say they don't know. They're not afraid of what they don't know. They're not afraid to ask for, uh, for help. I've learned to cry since I've been here. Uh, I had to be coached. There was a uh, fellow in my home group that was crying in almost every meeting. And at a year sober, I asked him about it. I said, tell me about the tears. And he said, oh, somebody says something beautiful and it touches my heart in a wonderful way. And I just weep and it feels so good. And I said, Tony, I can't cry. And he said, I will teach you. And he did. It took a year. And it is one of my great pleasures to teach people to cry. If you would like to learn, I typed it up. I brought them. And um, because it's my belief. Now, this is, this is the red flags warnings, all right? This is not in the text. This is my belief. It's my belief that I'm mind, body, and spirit. We've had the experience of the mind and the body running the show. Qualified me to sit in closed meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and most of the other 12-step fellowships you've ever heard of. Can't afford the price of the mind and body running the show anymore. And I believe my spirit communicates with my body and my mind through my emotions. So I can't afford to block the channel. That's how it is for me. And uh, so if you'd like to learn to cry, see me later. I'll be glad to show you. So I had to, I had to learn to lay down the act. That's very difficult to do when the only thing I know is that I'm no good. Well, here's a piece of the great truth if you happen to be new and you haven't touched this one yet. The God of forever, the one that invented the galaxies and the stars and the duckbill platypus, okay, was not in the middle of a long losing streak having a real bad day. <laughs> when he came up with me or any of you, it did not happen that way. We, we, I like to talk about the things I was wrong about. And the idea that I was effect, defective and not as good as everyone else was wrong. And if you've been believing that, you're wrong. It's just not so. It's just not so. There are things about me that needed some work. The fact that I'm working on it makes me healthy. I've got my own definition of healthy. It's somebody who's on the path, facing forward, moving at any speed. Don't care where on the path. doesn't matter. Love to hang out with them. The earth people bore me to death. I mean, they really do. I just I have no interest. I heard a speaker one time say he'd been picked up at the airport by a total stranger in the 20-minute ride to the Holiday Inn. They were talking about things most people wouldn't tell their priest. <laughs> and, and, and that's who we are. Anyway, I asked, when my sponsor told me I was going to have to do the 12 steps, I wasn't even sure he was serious about that, and uh, especially about nine, and they can't possibly mean that. And um, so I asked him why I had to do the 12 steps. Now, let me tell you about myself. 
When I ask why, I'm not actually looking for an answer. <laughs> what I'm looking for is a fight. I'm hunting for something I can argue with. Give me a, a why answer, and I'll explain to you where you're confused, you don't have all the pieces, there's something wrong with your argument. And uh, my sponsor did not answer why questions for the men that he sponsored, except for this one, and I don't either. And uh, he said the reason was that step one, section B says you're not in management. Why is a management question? <laughs> Consequently, all the why questions have the same answer, and the answer is you don't need to know. And I did not like that when I first heard it, and today I just love it. It's one of my cornerstones, because I always thought it was not knowing that made me crazy. And it, well, I was wrong about that. It was needing to know that was making me crazy. It wasn't not knowing. And when I've released my grip on needing to know, I cannot know and be okay. And that was kind of, anyway, I asked him why I had to do the 12 steps. I said, it's the only one he ever answered for me. And he said, think of yourself as a garbage can. It's the only easy, easy assignment I guess the man ever gave me. And he said, what we're going to do with these steps is dump you out. Scrub the can and stand it back upright. We're going to fish through your life. Most of it's trash. We're going to throw it away. But portions of it are good, and we'll keep those portions. And he gave two examples. And he said, do you love your children? I said, I love my children a lot. He said, great, we'll keep that. And then he got smart. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said, when you go to work, you do a good job? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, Pah. we'll keep some of that. When, <laughs> when we get finished with these steps, you'll be a large, clean can with just a little good stuff in the bottom. See, our program's kind of like going to the dentist. We've got to drill before we can fill. If we just fill with the good stuff, the poison's still in there. It'll rot. Eventually, it'll detonate. And uh, he said, the good news is like the dentist, we got Novocaine. We call it home group. We call it fellowship. We call it sponsorship. We call it love. It's not that hard. It's really not. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps look like they're designed to punish you, welcome. <laughs> That's how they look to us. And we were wrong about that, and you are too. Mm-hmm. Just not that hard. But, uh, and I just, every time he took a breath, I said, why? <laughs> I won't replay my part, but that's what it was each time. And he said, he said the reason is, is because eventually that stuff's going to detonate. And he says, really what you are is an escape artist. See, alcohol's not your problem. And it wasn't. Alcohol was my answer. And I told you before, if I'm going to lay down that answer, I need a new answer. I have to be turned into the kind of guy who never gets thirsty. And uh, this story has a very happy ending. My precious daughter, about 10 years ago, fired a pistol into her mouth. And she survived it. And uh, we did too. She's doing fine. Everything is good. You guys were wonderful. If I had not allowed him to coach me through those, those 12 steps, good chance I would have committed murder within 24 hours of that. And this story wouldn't have the happy ending that it does. But you see, I never got thirsty during that. Never did. I sponsor uh, now two men who've had their sons killed, teenage sons in recovery. Neither one of them ever got thirsty. And uh, one of them says it better than I could, and I have, a, I have permission to tell any story I tell up here, by the way, and Bob does too. Uh, he said it this way. He said, one of these days you'll have to go to the mountain all by yourself. If you haven't done the work out of this book and you can't reach up and take the master's hand, you won't be able to go. And I believe that. This is page 14. I didn't know I was going to cover this here. We read a lot of promises in the book. Here's one. Last line, page 14. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. 
We're here to promise you trials and low spots. Guaranteed right there. It says certain. Hope you get the work done for the next one. Because my sponsor said that's what you need that empty space in that can for is to store that pain. And he, what he said, the example he gave to me, he said tough stuff happens. He says one of the days something is just going to slam your heart. And when it does, he said your father's going to die. And on that day, if you don't have that big, clean, empty can, just a little good stuff in the bottom, if you don't have that empty, clean space to store that pain in, while we love you back to spiritual health, you'll escape. That's what you are. You're an escape artist. And the only escapes you know are killing you, and they're devastating everyone around you. And I ran out of why and allowed him to coach me through the 12 steps. I learned later what I was escaping from. It's kind of an interesting observation. Um, on pages 8 and 25, we're not going to him. Bill says that he's catapulted into the fourth dimension, and he says rocketed into the fourth dimension. Albert Einstein said the fourth dimension is time. The dimensions are width, height, depth, and time. And the time I'm rocketed into is right now. I can be present now. That's what I used to escape. I used to escape the right now. I couldn't stand to be here. Couldn't stand to be here. Um, I think one of the most difficult things for me to learn in recovery is not to borrow pain from the past or the future. I think the first ten steps are about cleaning up my past so there's nothing gaining on me. The last two are about embracing the great truth that this loving God holds my future. It is those two facts that free me to live one day at a time in this day. If I don't have both of those in place, I can't be here. That's what that's about. And so the, the time I'm rocketed into is the right now. I can be present, and I've been here all night. I haven't gone anywhere else. You understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. I'll tell you something else I was told early on, just in case you're new and it might be worth something to you. Have you ever had the experience of your eyes are moving across the page and your mind is moving across the universe? <laughs> I was told if I would read out loud, it would stop that. And it does. And I just pass it on in case you can use it. It's been important to me. We talk a lot about acceptance, too, and this was a beautiful gift for me, and I'm just going to share it for no reason at all, except I thought of it. Wow. Um, (laughs) Acceptance doesn't have to include approval. Acceptance is when I quit on a gut level, on a heart level, fighting something over which I have no power. I only get a certain amount of spiritual energy on any given day. And if I'm squandering it on, on things that I have no power over, I probably won't have sufficient quantities left to handle what is truly my assignment for this day. So I have to be careful that I have acceptance where I need it. Let's go to page 52. I love to do this one in the jail um, because we, we do this one as a, as a uh, audience response one in the jail. Paragraph begins, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. It says we were having trouble with personal relationships. Anybody get that? Uh huh. Couldn't control our emotional natures? Yeah. Prey to misery and depression? Had some of that? Couldn't make a living? That's fun with the guys in the jail. They get that one. We uh, had a feeling of uselessness. Hmm? We're full of fear. We were unhappy. Couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. You had some of that? Okay. Keep your hand on page 52. Don't lose this one. And let's skip to 83. At my home group, we do this as a choral reading. It actually, uh, in my part of the world, the uh, Nine Step Promises are read in most meetings as part of the opening. And one day, nobody had a book and nobody had a copy. And somebody said, I bet we can do them together. And we knew them, and we still do it that way, although most of us bring our books to class now. That might be kind of fun. 
Let's try that. I'm going to ask you to, and we do them with enthusiasm because we believe this. All right? Let's do them together. Bottom of page 83 begins with, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through, lightly now, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Okay, you still got page 52? Yeah. And live some of that? Like to live what's on 83 and 84? Then do this. What lies between not learn it, not understand it, not believe it, not interpret it, but do it. What my sponsor said is meet the conditions. It's not all of the program, but that's the heart. That's how I got from living the description on page 52 to living what's on 83 and 84. Powerful stuff. Powerful. See, I got here wanting to work the promises and hope the steps came true. <laughs> hmm? Did you do that when you were new? Kind of pretend you were living that because you thought that was what you were supposed to do? That's not it. When I, I really forgive the soapbox. This fake it till you make it thing makes me want to throw up. I've faked it long enough. We're going to talk about a different concept later, and that's act as if. It's a whole different thing. Uh, this is one I love a lot, too. Page 35. Could do this with me, Bob? You know what I'm going to do here? Great question. Top of page 35. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? So that's the question. All right? The answer is at the top of page 36 where it says, We ask him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. That would be different from this is what happened. Right? Remember that? What, what your story was wasn't maybe always exactly what happened. Okay. He says, I came to work on Tuesday morning. Or was he Monday? Well, now, wait a minute. Uh, Monday? What, what, well, I had the flu on Monday. Okay. Um, I remember I felt irritated I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. You don't think irritated strong enough on that? How about twisted out of shape, bent over? Okay. I had a few words with the boss. Nothing serious. Are you inferring that words with the boss are always serious? Huh? You see the thinking we're dealing with here? I think that's fantastic. And then, down in squiggly writing further down the page, suddenly, ah, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. 
That is the exact same thinking as words with the boss, nothing serious. Right? That's why I need a sponsor. Because I need somebody to hear what's going on in here so that I don't do it. I love somebody at my home group told me one time, I think it's really important. I've been reading two pages a day in the big book for a lot of years. I haven't tried to memorize the book, but I just know where a lot of stuff is now. That's the one day at a time concept applied to reading the big book. Two pages a day. That's all. I read the book four times a year like that. And, uh, but somebody at my home group said, do you know the difference between a good habit and a bad habit? I said, no. They said, good habits are easy to break. <laughs> I think that might be right. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about step one, and I'm going to wrap up a little something on that. that it, it, step one, here we go, page 59, I think. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, therefore our lives had become unmanageable, is what I saw for the first pretty good while that I was in here. On close examination, I have discovered that the word therefore does not appear in the first step. The reason I was confused about that is on June 27, 1984, which is the day of my most recent drink, the fact that I was powerless over alcohol and the fact that my life was a disaster were related. January 21st, 2005, the fact that I am powerless over alcohol, my life is unmanageable, are unrelated. The dash is English punctuation, which separates two separate thoughts, which Bob mentioned earlier. This may not mean anything to you. For me, it's one of the most important concepts I ever got. I don't find a place in this book after that point, after that page, that says, congratulations, now having achieved this high spiritual plane, your life is now manageable. The tank's full. The keys are in it. Go get Somebody shout out the page number. Where is that? I can't find it. I do find several places that promise sanity. And part of my sanity is that I have fired me as general manager of my own life based on my performance. And a good manager would have fired me decades ago. Yeah. And this morning... I invited God in to run my life, not as the 12 and 12 says, as a Bush League pitch hitter to give me a little help and get me out of this and I'll never do it again. I used to pray. I call them the pre-AA prayers. They were, um, help me pass this test I didn't study for. Don't let her be pregnant. (laughs) Well, they recognized that one, didn't they? And get me out of this and I'll never do it again and I really mean it this time. Right. And what I was doing in those days, if you'll think about it, is I was trying to make him my God. What you're teaching me here is how to make me his man. I had it backwards. I had so many things backwards. I treat my God like he's a gentleman. A gentleman won't go where he's not invited. He won't stay where he's not made welcome. And each morning I invite him into my life as God to run this life. I learned this from a guy I sponsor about three months ago. I say, God, you've given me another day. I'd like to give it back to you. And anything you want today suits me fine. Let's do it your way today. Help me just be of service. And I always ask him to help me treasure my wife. And that's about it. And then I lay out my plans for the day. Let me tell you something. Let me give you the warning that comes with that. If you've got things you really want to do that day, don't pray that prayer. <laughs> We're going to take a 10-minute break. We're going to start at 9 o'clock straight up. Bob Darrell, I'm an alcoholic. Okay. Um, we're powerless. We're dying. What, what brings a self-willed, opinionated guy like me to my knees that I would come into Alcoholics Anonymous 
and be able to listen to you. Because I fit the old adage, uh, you can always tell an alcoholic, but you can't tell him much. You know, I'm that guy. I just, I'm the guy who, I can't, I come into your meetings forced to come here and I can't shut this off. I can't stop picking you apart and you can't tell me nothing. And I'm that guy. How, do you, how does a guy like me surrender, get broken enough that I can actually come here and do what you do and listen to you and put, what has to happen to me to put myself aside long enough to get a foothold in here. Uh, 1977, I uh, ended up in a county jail. And I was facing a couple years in a state penitentiary for a hit-and-run DUI in a stolen car. They gave me a phone call, and there wasn't a person on the face of the earth to call. I was totally alone. I, I can't even put into words what that feels like to know that you're, you're light, you've destroyed your life and there's no one to turn to. And I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in that county jail as I'd gone to meetings and institutions for years. And I'm sitting there, and I'm not there for recovery, really. I, honestly, I'm there for tailor-made cigarettes. Because all they gave me was a thing of Bull Durham and some paper, right? And, and also, I knew people in AA had some influence, and some of them had a lot of money. Maybe I could shoot a little angle. You always got angles if you're like me. You know, get some guy to get a judge or put the bail or something, you know. I, and I'm sitting there, and here comes this guy, Woody. And I knew Woody. Woody used to bring the meetings into the detox I was in. Woody brought meetings into the halfway house I was in. Woody was one of those kind of members of AA that I judged harshly. Woody was one of those kind of guys that even on a good day, when things are kind of clicking a little bit, I can kind of tolerate Woody. This is not a good day. This is a bad day for me. And here comes Woody. He's one of those do-gooders in AA. Those, the, the, weird, the thing that I think bothered me both the most about Woody is Woody was happy and sober. <laughs> I know happy. I know sober. I don't know and I don't get happy and sober. My Alcoholics Anonymous for years as a slipper had to me had good news and bad news. The good news that Maybe if I went to thousands of these stupid meetings, I'll stay sober the rest of my life. And the bad news is I'm going to live a long time. Because <laughs> I can't imagine life without alcohol. And here comes Woody, and I, I have started apologizing to him for letting all the people in AA down. And I asked him if he could help me, you know, do you have a bit, you know, a judge or a, help me get out on bail. And I told him about my, my little plans, you know, I'm going to get out of here and I'll get in a good halfway house, not like that one that took advantage of me. I'll get in a good one and, I'll, and I'm going to get some of that government voc rehab money that I heard about that's good for alcoholics and I'm going to go to college and I'm going to, maybe I'll be a doctor or a lawyer or I'll be something. And Woody's looking at me and then I, I got, it's like I'm missing something. And I, oh, and I'm going to go to your meetings and work your stairs too. I'll do all that stuff. And, and Woody... And Woody looks me right in the eye in my broken state and says, Kid, who are you trying to kid? You're not going to stay sober. You haven't hit a bottom. You haven't surrendered, kid. Who are you kidding? Now, I didn't say nothing to him because I don't do well with confrontation sober. I mean, I, but I'm screaming. Do you ever just sit and, and think at people? And I'm thinking at him. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, who are you to tell me that? I don't, that's the most negative thing I've ever heard. I don't need that. I need positive reinforcement here. I don't need this negativity. 
What do you mean haven't hit a bottom? You don't know nothing about me. You with your Cadillac and your big house and your wife and kids and fancy job. You don't know nothing about me living on the streets. You don't know nothing about me. Surrender. I thought, I sat there in that meeting and I screaming at him in my head, surrender. What's he mean surrender? Surrender what? There's nothing left of me. Two years ago, I had a relationship and a job and I had, a, I had a stuff going on. I could have had some stuff to give up. I don't got nothing left. What's he talking about? And I never did say nothing to him. And I sat there that whole night and I couldn't sleep. And I sat in my bunk in my cell and I just running the scenarios through my head of what I should have said to Woody and then what he'd have said and then what I'd have said and then what he'd have said and then I would have hit him with the big one and he'd have been humbled at how wrong he was, you know. (laughs) And I didn't know that I was going to go on one more run after that and I would come off that run and I would know something in depth that Woody was right, that I hadn't surrendered. I hadn't surrendered the one thing that a guy like me has to give up or I will die of alcoholism. And it's not the house, and it's not the job, and it's, it's none of that stuff. I have to give up my self-reliance. See, I'm the guy who gets... So, I, I go on a run, and alcoholism will strip me to the bone, and I'll just burn my life to the ground. And then I'll get back in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the first thing I get back is my opinion. And it's I start the judgments and the big I am that listens to nothing except myself. And Woody looked at me and he knew I wasn't surrendered because surrendered as I've looked at hundreds of guys over the years in institutions. And I know because I listen to their little plans and designs and I realize the same thing that Woody realized when he was looking at me. What Woody saw was a guy that was dying of alcoholism, insisting on being at the helm of his own ship, even though he kept burning it down over and over again and I couldn't stop it and he knew I didn't have a shot as long as I was in control of my life and what brings a guy like me to this point of surrender it, it's you know there's the big illusion that I function under is there's going to be some ultimate bottom you know like a bottom that'll be so horrendous and so horrible I will it'll snap me into abstinence and I'll never drink again and I don't think there is such a thing matter of fact I see a lot of us go right past the worst bottoms you can think of we die on the streets we we drink ourselves into oblivion and toward and almost in a coma and throw up while we're passed out and we drown in our own vomit or we hang ourselves or you know all that stuff what brings a guy like me to a point of surrender and it talks about this place on the bottom of page 151 and 152 it's this is really what brought me to aa and what what got me in the door here. Without, if this hadn't happened to me, I'd have never, ever been able to come to you. It says, now and then, a serious drinker being dry at the moment says, I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. He fools himself inwardly, Secretly, I would give anything to take a half dozen drinks and get that ease and comfort and get away with it. I'd have given anything to get away with it. And it says, I will presently try the old game again. Why? Because I'm not happy about my sobriety, really. I can give you all the work better, feel better, having a better time. I can go to meetings and recite a litany of things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful I don't have leprosy. I'm grateful I'm not in jail. And it means nothing to me, really. 
It's just the, it's just the, the, the running of my mouth that I do when I want your approval. Secretly inside myself, I got a hole you could drive a Mack truck through. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And I, I sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous dying of that loneliness, that feeling it's all of you and then there's me. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And I would give anything to take a half dozen drinks and get away, from, get away with it because it's the only thing I ever knew that when I felt like this would be give me some relief. It's the only thing I ever knew. And it says, I'll presently try the old game again. And I did because I'm not happy about my sobriety. And then it says, I cannot picture life without alcohol. I really can't. Because abstinence feels like I'm doing time. And I drink again so I can come out and play. I drink again so I can be a part of. Alcohol integrates me at one time. Now, it doesn't do that the last couple years. But at one time it did, and it was the only thing I ever knew that ever did that, really. That ever did what I, scratched the itch that I needed to have scratched. It was the only thing that ever really did for me the thing I hungered to have done. It was the only thing that at one time, really, was an effective treatment for the real secret spiritual malady of alcoholism. It was the only thing that at one time ever really rang my bell. And now I can't imagine life without it. And then here's exactly what happened to me. This is what brought me into Alcoholics Anonymous or to a place that I think is the vestibule of AA. It's the entrance. It says, someday he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. If you're brand new, and your life is demoralized, and you can't imagine life with it anymore, and you can't imagine life without it, and you kind of wish you were dead, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. You, are, you have walked into the vestibule of spiritual change. You are stuck. You are without options. When you get to a place where drinking is awful, and not drinking is awful, and if you're lucky like I am, and you didn't have enough courage at the end, even though you tried to commit suicide, when you can't drink, and you can't not drink, and you can't kill yourself, I mean, what the hell's left except AA, really? I mean, <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, we are the last house on the block. We'll wish for the end. And that's what brought me to a bridge in 1978. That's on my last drunk. That's what took me out there with a bottle of Richard's Wild Irish Rose, just because I want to stop this. I've entered into a phase of alcoholism that I had been in for a couple years, but was delusional about it. You know what delusion is? It's, Scott talked about it. It's, it's, it's psychotic, wishful thinking. All the evidence is, is the last many times I've drank, it's been awful, but I don't want it to be awful. So I start to imagine that it's going to be like it was when I was 20 years old, even though it hasn't been that way for a long time. And I imagine it so vividly that I am absolutely convinced it's going to be like that, even though when I start drinking, it ain't like that no more. And I've entered into a state of alcoholism, and I got it where the party's over and I knew it. And now I'm not the guy that's drinking and shooting pool and laughing and talking to the girls and having a good time. I've become the guy who sits all by himself if I'm in a bar or if I'm on a park bench with a bottle of wine 
And I sit in those bars and those gin joints and I throw down those shots and I feel sorry for myself. And sometimes I grow and cry in jags. And I feel so alone and full of self-pity. And I look at the people that are having fun drinking and I resent them and I hate them and I want what they have. And I don't know why I can't be like that because that I was all about that at one time. What happened to the glory days? What happened to the magnificence of the effect I had once found in alcohol? I can't imagine life without it. And I can't imagine life with it. And I'm stuck. The party's over. And abstinence just doesn't, I can't, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't do abstinence. I can do it for a while. Ten months, a year, maybe. I, I think I, you know, I'm the kind of guy, if I, if I would have had enough money and I was rich enough, maybe I could have had a, maybe abstinence for long term the rest of my life would have been possible if I would have been rich enough maybe to create a non-stop series of self-gratifying events that never stopped. You know, like a new $80,000 car every three days, a new motorcycle every two days, a new girlfriend every four days, a new house, new vacation. You know, if I could have created a non-stop series of gratification events, maybe I wouldn't have to return to drinking. But I can't do that, and I always get to the point where there's nothing left to throw at the vacancy. There's nothing left to put between me and me, and there I am. And I drink because I don't know what else to do, really. And the people in AA say, well, do AA. Well, what do you got here for fun? (laughs) Well, we got these meetings. (laughs) Got anything else? Well, every once in a while, we have an AA dance. You ever been to an AA dance with untreated alcoholism? Oh, man, you'll remember right away why you used to drink. I'll tell you, you're standing up against the wall like this. Oh, it's all of them, and then there's me. Oh, this is great. Having fun yet? (laughs) So it was the absolute lack of alternatives and the smashing of the first illusion that someday I'll control and enjoy it, that I'll ever beat this thing, and a lack of alternatives that really brought me here. If I could have killed myself, somebody else would be up here. If I could have learned to beat this thing and not keep relapsing, somebody else would be up here. Or if I could have controlled my drinking and got back to the good old days. But I was absolutely, truthfully, on the square, out of options. And that was what brought me here. When I was new in sobriety, you know, I, I, the last couple of years I was, I was a homeless guy, which doesn't, isn't a prerequisite for alcoholism. There's a lot of homeless guys that are just... Just nuts. I mean, they're just not, they're not, they're an alcoholic. But I was there because I didn't care anymore. You know, I'd had at one time, I had great stuff. And when you, it doesn't ring your bell and you know that that doesn't help, you start to get to a point where I don't even care. So you let it all go. And I went down and, and you think, you know, the big illusion, the big illusion is you think homelessness is terrible. I'm telling you, there's a, there's an amount of relief in it. You know, what's really hard. It's when you're tr- trying to still maintain the relationships and the job and put up the front and juggling your alcoholism. That's hell. When you give it all up and you go live in an abandoned building and you're getting free meals on the street, now you can drink the way you've always wanted to drink. It's almost a relief. I'm telling you, it really is almost a relief. And I, uh, 
a guy and in, in, in people in Alcoholics Anonymous brought me, gave me clothes when I was new because I had nothing. They gave me cigarettes. They gave me rides to meetings. And a guy one day gave me a box of books. And I wasn't sober very long. And, and they weren't recovery books. They were just like airplane books, books you read to kill time, you know, novels and things like that. And this one book, I started to read it, and it, there was a part in there that just blew my mind. And it wasn't about alcoholism, but I'll tell you, it gave me a, more insight into what had happened to me than anything I'd ever heard in AA. And it was a story of these scientists that were doing experiments on the human brain. And, and they discovered that in the human brain was a part that had a big, long Latin name. But in the book, they referred to it uh, as the pleasure center of the brain. It was the part of the brain that allowed you to experience the euphoria from alcohol and also other drugs. It's a part of the brain that lets you get high, that the, the alcohol stimulated and they discovered this, this part, and they were going to do some experiments. So they got these laboratory rats, and they would put two tiny wire filaments into the pleasure center of the rat's brain, and they would pass a mild, barely detectable electric charge through those wires, just enough to stimulate that pleasure center of the rat's brain, and the rat would get loaded. So what they did is they hooked up the juice to a pedal in the rat's cage, and the rat would learn he could hit that pedal and get high. So the rat would just go over and lay on the pedal. I mean, you know, he doesn't drink water, he doesn't eat, he doesn't, doesn't part, you know, nothing. He just, you can parade rats of the opposite sex by him. He's just, not now, baby, I'm partying. You know, he's just hitting that, hitting that thing. Hit, he'll hit that pedal until he dies, usually of dehydration, because he's not drinking water. So what these scientists did, and this is, now that, that part didn't really get me that much, because we all get that. I mean, as I'm telling the story, I can see by some of the glazed eyes in the room, there's some rats here tonight. I mean, we all get that. I mean, you know, hitting the pedal till we die. We all get that. But what really got me is that these rats, or that these scientists would, would wait till a rat was just about dead, and then they'd turn the juice off. Now the rat would go back and he'd hit the pedal and nothing happens. And he'd hit it again and nothing happens and again and again and again. Countless vain attempts to recapture the juice. And he'd finally get it once and for all that the party was over. And instead of being able to go back to being a rat, he would curl up in a ball and lay on the floor of the cage to die. Because without the juice, there's nothing to live for. And I'm reading that and I'm weeping because I know that that's me. That's exactly what happened to me. I didn't come here into Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted sobriety or spiritual growth. Or <laughs> I don't even get that. I don't even understand that. It's just, it all sounds like some kind of Hallmark card in a recovery bookstore to me. I don't get it. I came here because I'm that rat. If, I, if God would have said to me, Bob, what do you want? I'd say, give me... Give me the juice. Turn the juice back on. Turn the juice back on for two years. You can kill me. But turn the juice back on for two years. And I'll tell you, as a lack of alternatives, I came here and I surrendered to this simple program. I got out of a group that had been dying since the beginning days of Alcoholics Anonymous. There may be some in, this, in that group in this room today. And maybe you don't even know. I was part of a group of people it talks about in Chapter 5. It says those who cannot recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And I'd been part of that group for seven and a half years and didn't even know it. I, I wouldn't have thought I was part of that group because I went to a lot of meetings. 
but I did nothing as a program of recovery. I had no steps in my life, no sponsor, no God's grace, nothing. And in 1978, I got a sponsor and I got a home group and I started through these, this process in this book. And to my amazement, I've discovered something that I think, I bet my life on it. I, I think it is the essence of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's why I have a sponsor, why I go to Skid Row, why I sponsor people, why I try to do step 10, 11, and 12, why I do everything I do here is for one reason. It's not to quit drinking, really. You want to quit drinking, punch a cop. You'll quit drinking for a while. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous in my book is designed to do one thing, and it's designed to turn the juice back on so that I can get in that zone again that I once found in the early days of my drinking where I was a part of and I was integrated and I came out of myself and I was relieved of the bondage of self and I could, I could talk to people and I could care about people and I was concerned and I was funny and I was me. I was me. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to do, is to put the juice back on so I can be part of that flow in the universe. Did you ever see, uh, what's that great basketball player, uh, Jordan, I think his name is, he'd make those half-court shots that swish in the basket, and the crowd would go crazy, and he'd just go. <laughs> and one time in an interview, he said, he said, I just get in that zone. He said, that ain't me. Alcohol at one time put me in that zone. Alcoholics Anonymous, when I'm relieved of the bondage of self and I'm other-centered and I'm free from the fears and the resentments and the judgments that have driven me, I get in that zone also. That's why I come here. As a friend of mine says, that's the good dope here. (laughs) Scott. Page 16. I was thinking about this as Bob was talking. Second paragraph, if you're new, is a piece of truth you probably haven't suspected yet. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I am convinced that laughter is the sound effect of recovery. I'm convinced of that. Once we get you laughing, we got you. I, I, I mean, when, when they captured me and put me in treatment, I thought the party was over and I was never going to have any more fun. I was wrong about that. It didn't occur to me I hadn't had any fun yet. I had it wrong. I, I want to share something with you. A fellow I sponsored called me a few weeks ago, and he said, uh, said, I've been obsessing a little bit about this particular situation. He went on for a little while. I think it's kind of interesting, as I note, this, when I like to do this for us, we're the only people in the world that will accept the concept obsessing a little bit. <laughs> so I blew that right by you. That made perfect sense to you. The earthlings go up like rockets when you say stuff like that around them. What? It means nothing to them. And uh, also, if you're new, my sponsor probably saved my life with this one. Because I was in the process of removing my own character defects. <laughs> and that would give you a brain hernia. And, um, and I was, um, what he said was, I'm not responsible for what I think. I am responsible for how long I think it. I can't keep trash from showing up up here. But when it gets dirty, I can sweep. Wow. It gave me permission to be human. And it helped me tremendously, and that's why I share it. 
I, I missed when I was doing the uh, descriptions of the alcoholic, I missed one of my favorites on page 23. thought I might pick it up right now. Because I think this one just really rocks it for me. It may not touch you at all. First sentence, paragraph, middle of the page. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. I don't spread it around too thick myself, right? I'm saving it for emergencies. I, uh, there's a line in a country song I heard one time. said, you'll never catch me in a lie, but I'll tell you the truth at my own pace. <laughs> Boy, there it is. And that's one of the big changes for me is actually getting out there and trying to tell the truth. And I, I want to quote a friend of mine from my home group who reduced what, what we do here to what she called the four ups. Get up, give up, show up, fess up. Isn't that beautiful? Neat stuff, neat stuff. Uh, and I heard this the other day, too, and I loved it. It said, don't let the things that A brings you take you away from AA. And, um, and one more before I get into the sermon. Um, <laughs> love this one. For those who may be hiding behind the fact that our steps are just suggested, we have good news and bad news. The good news is you're right, they're only suggested. The bad news is they're the only suggestions we got. <laughs> Page 45. Lack of power. That was our dilemma. Not lack of management, not lack of getting what I wanted, not, not lack of figuring out. There's not a chapter figuring it all out. That was pointed out to me. So we had, had to, I wonder how important that is, we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Here's the shortest sentence in the book, obviously. <laughs> Whole sentence right there, one word. Did you get it? Is that, I hope that's obvious for you. Where and how are we to find this power? That's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. I'd like to make an observation here. I want to observe, I can read that sentence two different ways. I happen to think both meanings are correct. Main object to enable me to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. All right. It either says that the finding of that power solves my problem. Or it says, the fi- I find the power and the power solves my problem. It does not say, I find the power and then I solve my problem. I like to observe a lot of times what it doesn't say. Because sometimes that carries power. Because I get confused about that kind of thing. Page 20, another one of those, isn't it important what it doesn't say? About eight lines down on page 20. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, that's a pretty interesting caveat. Do you want to be over it? Have you had enough? Are you done? You may already be asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We should tell you what we've done. I'd like to observe what it does not say. It does not say, what do I have to know? We'll teach you what we've learned. What I know isn't worth anything. I believe there are people who know this better than I do that are drunk tonight. It doesn't say, what do I have to believe? We'll give you a new religion. Don't, don't, if you're new, I don't much care what you believe. If what you believed worked, you probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, not asking you to believe it. It doesn't say, what do I have to understand? We'll help you interpret. 
I don't care if you ever understand this. I had a fellow stop me after me. I knew he'd been watching me. If you're new and you don't have a sponsor and you're looking at somebody in particular thinking about asking them to sponsor you, they know that. <laughs> this guy had been watching me for a while, and I talked about one of the steps in the meeting. He stopped me after me, and he said he's, this great, profound question. He said, would you help me understand the steps better? And I said, no, absolutely not. I'll help you do them. I don't care if you ever understand them. <laughs> Because this is not about what I understand. What it says is, what do I have to do? We shall tell you what we've done. And what we have done is surrendered to sponsors who have already done these 12 steps and allowed those sponsors to coach us through the 12 steps and stayed active carrying this message. That's what we've done. And it's been the experience of this group because I asked the question earlier. Nobody here had ever seen anybody in and out of the program. In and out of the fellowship? Mm-hmm. Every day. In and out of the program? No. They're page... Uh, Intentional misread, page 58. We are going to do how it works sometime tomorrow, by the way. But I love this one. This one's on purpose, all right? Rarely have we seen a person in jail who has thoroughly followed our path. Okay, so page 45 talks about me finding a power. Let's, talk, let's take a look at page 63 for a second. About, about eight lines down. As we felt new power flow in. There's power. Page 132 has power again. Kind of interesting. There's a, there's a great quote that you see a lot on that one. The one here in the middle of the page. Just for fun. It's 17 lines from the top and bottom and two words in from both margins. The center of the page. It says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. I hope you insist on enjoying life. But here's the power. When down four lines from the bottom. We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. A friend of mine who's been around for a long time said, be careful, that's not your power. Well, that's power that's been given to you and you know whose power it is. You better make doggone sure you're using it in ways that you think the giver of that power would, would approve of. thought that was a pretty good piece of information. Bob talked a little bit about bottom and I want to talk about it too. I haven't found the definition in my, in my literature and this is my experience. Bottom for me was not of the, of the, on the physical plane. Uh, I'm a puker. Are there any pukers here? You pukers? Yes. All right. Ever come out your nose and nose pukers? Yeah. Yeah. The nose pukers will quit forever every time they do that. And isn't that right, nose pukers? Yeah, you bet. You betcha. Yeah, quitting forever. Uh huh. Yeah, that's 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 really important stuff. But and I've 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 thrown up blood on several occasions. I've been in lots of kinds of trouble. I know men serving long prison sentences and aren't bottom. Bottom for me wasn't on the physical plane. Bottom is, is in here. Bottom was of the spirit. When I hated my guts and was so repulsed by the things that I'd done that I would have paid any price and done anything not to be me. That was bottom. That for me was the one that counted. That, that was where I was willing to pay the price. Page 53. Here's my story right here in the middle paragraph. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis. Oh, I'm the problem? Self-imposed crisis? See, I thought that life was a series of I build things up and then it all comes crashing down. And then I build things up and it all comes crashing down. And I build things up and it all comes crashing down. I get sober and took a look at it. And what was really going on is I build things up and then I kick out the supports and it all comes crashing down. You know, that's the difference between my story and the truth. 
When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. Hmm, those are my tools. (laughs) Postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? I'm asked to make a choice here. Time to make a choice. Talking here about step two. Time to make a choice. That's simple, really. I talked earlier, uh, let's take a look at 57, talked a little bit earlier about sanity. This is some very powerful stuff for me at the top of page 57, where it promises me sanity in a couple of places. It says, save for a a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned, and at such times a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly he could not drink if he would. God had restored his sanity. I'll tell you right now, if your history with alcohol is anything like mine, being repulsed by the thought of a drink is a sane reaction. They are describing sanity. And then it says, what is this but a miracle of healing? Its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. Right? He got in a crack so narrow he couldn't get out. That was how I got willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker. Let's observe. He didn't say, give me a little help. Get me out of this one. I'll never do it again. Offered himself to his I was always afraid I was going to work God too hard. You know, I wouldn't want to give him too much. Tell you what, I wouldn't want to... I'll cover sex and money and he can get the rest. I don't think that's the package. Offered himself to his maker, then he knew. Even so, as God restored us all to our right minds, how's that for a promise? There's a promise of sanity. To this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly. And here's a powerful promise. But he has come to all who have honestly sought him. Not found, but sought. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. One of my mentors tells me that, that God will, re- will disclose himself to me as I disclose myself to me. That that's what this thing is about. Page uh, 60. Just above the ABCs. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic. Here's something they just added two years ago. I remember when they added this to the book. <laughs> and our personal adventures before... And after? And after? Does that mean my adventures after my last drink? Make clear three pertinent ideas? I think that what's that, that's what that means. I can look at them and say it's true. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. And what I like to do with a new fella, and I'm not saying you should, this is just how I was taught to sponsor, is I like to get him through reading this first stuff. I like to read it to him. Let's talk about what it says. And then I'm going to ask him the ABCs as questions. Hey, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. That's two-part. You're an alcoholic? Convince me. What makes you think so? Let's talk about it. Let's look at the descriptions of alcoholism and the alcoholic in the book. Do you meet these? Tell me how these things happen. Okay, and the second half, can't manage our own lives. What happens when you manage? How's it going? (laughs) Tell me about it. Let's hear it. And what I do is let him set his own cornerstones. B, that probably no human power could have relieved alcoholism. Who tried? Your parents try? Wife? Wives? Um, psychiatrists? Psychologists? Uh, judges? Cops? Treatment centers? Who tried? I'll tell you right now, I can't. And given the fact of what he has just told me, that none of those human powers were able to relieve his alcoholism, in the past, does it seem a logical conclusion... Therefore, no human power will be able to relieve your alcoholism in the future. I think that's pretty clear. 
says that God could and would if he were sought. It doesn't say found. Item one, God is not lost. Therefore, it is not required to be found. And I love this. I'm told that God is kind of like the mother of a three-year-old playing hide-and-seek with her child. Where does she hide? Where the child can find her. Sure. Powerful. Powerful. The book makes some recommendations on this one. Well, Mama, why'd Grandma die? Well, it was God's will. Sounds dangerous to me. Uh, I need to get away from that. Um, well, okay, little boy, if you want that, pray for it. Okay, so as a little boy, I pray for it. One of two things happens. I get it, which, of course, is due to my own sheer skill and cunning or dumb luck, and not because God answered the prayer, or I don't get it. And either God doesn't exist or God exists and doesn't care about me. That's what I got here with, and, of course, the prayer, the pre-AA prayers I told you about before. That's how I got here, badly confused about all this stuff. The book makes the same recommendation on two different pages, page 12. where Ebby suggested to Bill a very novel idea, it says, just above the center of the page. My friend suggested what would then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Wow. Page 93. <coughs> About six lines down. He does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes. Provided it makes sense to him. Someone asked him to design God. To sit down and write down on a single piece of paper, bullet points, not narrative, but bullet points, what would you like God to be? Not what do you believe, not what did they tell you. What would you like God to be? Let's put it down. How about creative? How about laughs a lot? How about available? How about loving? How about eager to forgive? Let, let, let's put them down. What, and I don't, I don't start. I want him to start. And when he gets a list, um, sometimes I'll say, now I'd like to suggest some additions. Don't put them down if you don't want them. And you can free, you're free to add to the, this list anytime you want to. And from this point on, when you and I use the word God, we're going to, talk, we're going to be talking about this one, the one you've designed, because he will have bracketed my own concept. And we have reason to believe that's true. We're going to act as if, not fake it. We're going to act as if. I'm going to ask you, if you believe that, how do you think you'd conduct yourself? Conduct yourself in that manner and we'll see what happens. It's what the scientists called a working hypothesis. It means we have reason to believe this might be true. The reason we have is that this is what I believe and my life's working. So let's act as if you, you would act if you believe that. And see what happens. A simple experiment. Page 46. This is for the immediate gratifiers in the room. There may be some. (laughs) Yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as. That means right now. As soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get the results. And this is what I quoted before when we started. Even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. I had to take, when I got here, my own concept of what the words God's will meant. 
and break them into two pieces. This is, just, again, red flags. This is just what worked for me. The first piece is a series of things that include what am I going to be when I grow up, where am I going to live, who am I going to live with, how much money am I going to make, what's going to happen to my children, to the pygmies in Africa never heard of Jesus, can they go to heaven? All of that stuff. <laughs> All right? It seems to me that every bit of that violates one day at a time as it's all in the future. And being in the future, I now think of that concept as God's plan. Step one, section B, says I'm not management. Consequently, I don't need to know what the plan is. And I lay that down and it leaves me with my own concept of God's will. And that's very simply what would he have me do today. I'm a citizen. I voted. And I'm going to tell you how I voted. I voted by secret ballot. I hope you did too. And I, and I hope you won't ever go any further than that in or around an AA meeting. It's really important. All right. I'm a citizen. I vote. I drive a vehicle. Put your blinker on near me in traffic. I will let you in. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. I have a home group. I have a sponsor. I've worked the steps. I sponsor some guys. I have the privilege of taking meetings into treatment centers and uh, jails. Uh, I'm married to a spectacular woman. I act like it all the time. I say please and thank you. Uh, I'm a child of God. I pray. I meditate. I read spiritual literature. I go to meetings. I try to treat you guys like brothers and sisters. I know what God's will is for me. is to act like one of his children today. For me, the simple concept of God's will is what would he have me do today? To step out of management, to quit trying to figure it all out, and walk humbly in his presence this day. I think the word today is the magic word. I think it's the magic word. A lot of times, guys, I sponsor bring me a question, and I'll say, give me that question again. I want to hear the question with the word today in it. And let's stop trying to fix the rest of your life. i got a friend who says he spends too much time in his head trying to clear away the wreckage of his future. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get out of that business. The today word is magic. Let's hear the question with the word today in it. Let's explore answers that contain the word today. Let's see what happens. That works so beautifully. Okay, still on page 46, next paragraph. Much to our belief, I'm sorry, much to our relief, we discovered... We did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with him. As soon as, right now, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. I wonder what steps they're talking about. (laughs) Always curious about that. Always wondered about that. We found that God does not make too hard terms of those who seek him. Oh, God's not mad? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. To us, the realm of spirits, broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek it is open, we believe, to all men. I'm going to skip the next paragraph uh, because I've been working on as soon as, and here it comes again. We need to ask ourselves one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as... A man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe. We emphatically, that's with energy, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. I would like to make a couple of observations. One of them is that I do not consider myself to be an expert on this, and I know Bob doesn't either. We're students of this thing. And uh, if you disagree with anything I have to say, I'd love to hear from you. Let's not talk to you. 
It's to hear from you. It's a chance for me to learn something. So please, not in public, but, you know, one at a time. Um, <laughs> and uh, several people actually have asked if we could do a question session. And uh, they asked for questions and answers. We can't promise that, but we can sure promise questions. And, uh, and questions and dumb looks, we can guarantee that. <laughs> we got that covered for you. So, uh, and I also would request that the questions, if any, would be short. I've only got two brain cells left, and one of them's on a respirator, and the other one flickers. And if you, uh, if you go into a long question, I won't be able to understand the question. But if anybody's got anything for us, because if not, we can continue or we can take the break for tonight. Yes, sir. Okay, forward to the first edition. I'm so sorry. Forward to the second edition, 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Uh, about second paragraph down, kind of in the middle of the paragraph. What, what page are you on? Page XV, Roman numeral 15. I'm so sorry. I'm in a, I'm in a third edition book. I'm not a that's fine. The, the, that's on the forward same. Forward to the second edition. Forward to the second edition. Uh-huh. Yeah. XV. 150,000 alcoholics. Uh-huh. Yeah, 300,000 copies of the book, 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Okay. So that's like 50% in 1955. Right. Right? So why is it that whatever the numbers are that are the numbers, that it's like 2 or 3%? He's asking the question is why the recovery rate's different. Actually, it's on page Roman numeral 20XX at the end of that, which is, I think, a similar question. It says, of alcoholics who came to and really tried 50%, got sober at once. Remained that way, 25% sobered up after some relapses. Among the remainder stayed on, showed improvement. I think the reason the numbers are so much better today than they were in that day is because we are so focused on the steps. This group tonight has seen no relapses among people who actually did the program. And I think that's powerful. There's, there's a phrase that scares me to death, and forgive the soapbox again, but we are committing murder with the phrase, don't drink and go to meetings. People think people are dying from that. They're dying from that. I got, I got a question on that one. If sitting with a bunch of other alcoholics talking about our problems is going to get people sober, wouldn't the guys under the Woodland Street Bridge in Nashville, Tennessee, be sober right now? You bet they would. It ain't working for them, and it does not work for us. Here are the steps we took. We polled this group tonight, and nobody here has seen anyone actually do the steps out of this book with a sponsor and stay active and drink again. I'd say we were batting a 1,000 in here tonight and in the experiences of the people here. Not only has no one here done it, then nobody here has seen it. So I think the numbers have gotten better. But, but hanging around AA meetings for a while won't any more turn you into a sober member of AA than sitting around in a garage going to turn you into 57 Chevy. <laughs> my, that's an opinion only, but... Uh, it's also my experience. Thanks. Anybody? Anybody else? Sir? What did they do before they had the Big Book 12 step study then? Bill? Did they uh, all go out and drink because there was no Big Book 12 step study? What happened? Bob? First five years. Uh, you know, if you. If yeah, you repeat his question. Uh, the question is what did they do before the Big Book was printed in 1939? Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the steps were in place. They came from the Oxford group. They were actually there was only six of them, and Bill fleshed them out to twelve. Uh, if you if you go through Bill's story, 
uh, Bill took the 12 steps before he had the spiritual awakening in Towns Hospital. If you, let me see if I can find this part of the book. It, where it gives you a, a thumbnail description of what the early members did. And it's it, huh? 12 and 13. Page 12 and 13. Listen to this. Now, this is before there was an Alcoholics Anonymous. This was before the big book. This is Bill's probably, this was probably December 11th, 1934. Uh, let me see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thirteen. Okay. At the hospital, page thirteen. At the hospital, I was separated for alcohol from the from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremors. There, I, this is in the hospital. There, I humbly offered myself to God, as I understood Him, to do with me as He would. I placed myself unreservedly under His care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, and that without him I was lost. Step that's, That looks like the first three steps. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. Now that sounds like four, five, six, and seven. And you notice he says root and branch. He talks about that this step six and seven here differently than anywhere else in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, I've had, not had a drink since. And then uh, later, okay, my school met, visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies, step five. We had made a list of people I had hurt and towards whom I had resentment. That's step, step eight. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrongs, step eight again. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. I was to test my thinking by my new God consciousness within, step 11. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me, step 11. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others, step 11 again. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend promised that when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. I think it becomes very apparent that these steps, Bill took these before, uh, they, before they ever did it, because later on page 14, after he did the steps, is when he had his spiritual awakening. The big myth in AA is that Bill had this white light experience from doing nothing. Bill went through all of this stuff and then had the white light experience on page 14 after he went through the steps. The steps have been in place since the very beginning. If, if you ever want to read a good book, it's called, I think it's called The Tale of a Comet. And it's Frank Buckman's biography of how, of how he formulated some of this stuff. This stuff is, has been in pr- place since day one. Let's see if anybody else stay. Huh? Anybody else? Anybody other questions?